Today, I want to talk about uh, Emmanuel. I've been uh, teaching the grade 5-6 class the last uh, term, and we've been having a really good time, actually, in class, uh, believe it or not. Um, and usually we watch the Bible Project, uh, which are those videos from uh, Tim Mackey. And the last few weeks, we've been doing kind of a, a more Q, Q&A time. And, you know, these kids are at the age where they're starting to ask questions. They're in the room this morning. Uh, they're starting to ask questions that are more substantial than a lot of the stuff that they were asking when they were younger, because reality is starting to hit them. They're like, huh, what is God like? You know, where do we go after we die? Uh, you know, these are sort of the deeper questions. And so we've been providing space to have those questions. Last week, um, somebody asked, why was Jesus called Jesus? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. And so I, you know, I, I started explaining to them about how the, the story or the, everyone in you know, biblical times, their, their names meant something that was very intentional. Um, and Jesus meant the God who saves or God who rescues. And, and then we played kind of a, trick, uh, a quick um, trivia game for candy. Um, because yes, I definitely use candy to coerce your children. And believe it or not, it works really well. Um, there's a lot of energy in that room, so you have to find something to deal with. Anyway, so I was using candy, and I said, okay, so that's Jesus' name, but does anyone know another name that was given to Jesus? And there's silence. And so I said, okay, it starts with E, nothing. Man, Emmanuel. Very, very slow class. Emmanuel. Oh, man, Cedar burst. Oh, Emmanuel. Yes. Yes. Emmanuel, I said. Isaiah. Yeah. We got to learn sometime. Emmanuel. And, and Isaiah uses this term, Emmanuel, and it's carried throughout the scriptures. Um, and then I said, okay, for a bonus question, a bonus candy, can anyone, a bonus Mentos, can anyone tell me what the name Emmanuel means? And there was silence. Nobody knew. So I started to eat the, the Mentos in front of them as I explained that uh, <laughs> Emmanuel means God with us. And as I began to explain to the students what the implications of God with us meant, surprise, surprise, I started to get, kind of get choked up. And if you know me at all, you know that that's nothing unusual. Um, but there are some beautiful implications to this understanding of the God who is with us, who uh, lives and breathes and experiences everything that we experience. And this idea challenges all of the conventional religious understandings of God that are out there. And, and I think there's a reason why there are no other um, religious worldviews that offer this unique perspective of the divine. Because God is always out there, right? He is separate from us. He's apart from us. He's beyond our grasp. He's beyond our experience. And, you know, we can concede that, sure, he loves us. Maybe he made us. You know, there's lots of uh, beliefs that, that hold that, absolutely. But he's not one of us. And that's, that's blasphemous to many religious worldviews, that God would be one of us, steeped in the human condition that we all are steeped in. And yet, this is the profound message of the Christmas story, isn't it? And we read, uh, you know, Pastor Keith has been going through Philippians the last few weeks, and uh, we read in Philippians 2, Paul, Paul talks about this God who makes himself nothing and takes on the very 
um, form, very nature of a servant and made in human likeness. I mean, that's a, that's just a concept you're not going to find in any other sort of religious worldview that's out there. Christianity is very unique in what it proposes is the nature of God. So with that human likeness comes all of the toil and all of the the trial and the tragedy and the disappointments that you and I have all experienced in life because we're subject to this broken world, like covered in sin. And the sin kind of entangles its way through everything and, and we experience that. And Jesus was on the receiving end of that in his life as well. Uh, many of you uh, maybe know that my wife and I used to live in the Bahamas, and uh, we lived there for a number of years, and over the past 10 years, we keep going back kind of every couple of years, and so many of our very um, dear friends are from there. And this past September, uh, the island was hit with the worst hurricane on record, well, since 1935, a Category 5 hurricane that came over our small, beautiful little island and sat there for 24 hours and wreaked utter devastation across the island. And uh, in the weeks that followed, as telephone lines started to be restored, um, we started connecting with some of our friends and hearing their harrowing stories of how they survived this Category 5 hurricane. It's just incredible in and of itself, but also just the despair in their voices, the despair in their messages as they shared about, like, where do we start? Where do we, where do we even begin the cleanup for this? Uh, I was speaking with a buddy last week. And he's on one of the smaller islands off of the main island. And he said, Steve, there are good days and there are dark days. And to be honest, the dark days have really been uh, prolific lately. His wife and his children had to go to Florida so they can go to school and find some sort of normalcy and, and routine in their life. He's had to stay on the island to try to find a way to make money. There's no, he was a teacher with us. There's no school to teach at anymore. So he's working, cleaning up properties, making a few bucks doing that, and trying to like figure out, like, do we, you know, his house has been gutted. It's no longer livable. So he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do with this? Uh, so he's staying somewhere. I was like, can you just appreciate the depth of despair that they're facing right now? And yes, he has his family, and he's grateful for that, and uh, of course, but without trying to minimize the importance of having loved ones still, you, you can hopefully appreciate just this burden that folks in this situation are feeling. And I, and I share that story because it's dear to our heart, I, these people of that I know, but we all know, I mean, these kind of stories of despair are all around us. Like, they're in our lives, but you turn on the news, and, and they're everywhere, um, and you might say this is an expected part of life in this world right now. Like, this is the deal. This is what we've been handed. You know, a cynic might say life just sucks. That's, make the best of it. Um, Sarah Bessie, who's an author many of us in this room are familiar with, and perhaps if you're not, I'd encourage you to, to check her out. She's a great author, very um, well-written. And she uh, sent a newsletter recently, and I read this, and this paragraph just kind of, reflects or echoes what I'm saying here. She says, but many of us are wondering how could we possibly enter into Advent if we're paying attention to this world? How do we celebrate or get cozy or turn towards Christmas when our hearts are broken by serious refugees, by Hong Kong's protests, by Brexit, by the USA impeachment proceedings in detention camps, by broken treaties? 
by one another, when in response to every crisis, our communities seem splintered and divided, even in how to bind up each other's wounds and careless words are flung like rocks at our own glass houses, when perhaps we are lonely or bored or tired or sick or broke or afraid, when we are grieving and when we are sad. And I think what Sarah's getting at here is what it means to be human in this world in which sin, as I said, gets entangled into the best of our intentions, affecting us all, whether we are the source of it or whether we are on the receiving end of it. And so as we open the scriptures this morning, I I want us to explore this Emmanuel, this God with us, that enters into this reality, this human experience, and what that means for us. And so I want to explore the, the Christmas story, or at least a part of it, from the Gospel of Matthew, and a few things off the bat as we begin. So first of all, when we read Matthew, it's important to recognize that this author is speaking to a very specific um, audience. And by the way, we're going to get super Bible geeky uh, today, okay? So buckle up. Uh, that's my disclaimer. Um, So Matthew's writing to a very Jewish audience. He has a very um, specific intention in writing to this audience. He wants to compel or convince the Jewish people that this Messiah, this Yeshua, or this Yeshua is the Messiah. That's his whole intent. And so um, that's that's the main sort of thrust. But then another one is dispelling this um, myth of, uh, sorry, it says religious freedom. It should be religious fulfillment. This myth of religious fulfillment. Religious freedom is something we very much believe in. Um, But religious fulfillment, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, And and I have to just take a pause for a second here. A lot of the ideas, and dare I say, almost all of the ideas that I share this morning aren't mine. Um, I have uh, been really listening to uh, Tim Mackey, who, like I mentioned him earlier, he does the Bible Project. And he has... um, kind of done all the heavy lifting of the, bio, the scholarly work here. And I've just kind of like snatched it and now I get to present it to you. Um, it saved me a lot of work. Uh, but I'm just telling you, if there's anything profound or anything beautiful or insightful, it likely wasn't coming from me, it was from him. So um, anyway, that's sort of out of the way. One of the unique agendas, as I said, was to uh, appeal to this Jewish audience. But then the other one was this uh, dispelling of the, the myth of religious fulfillment. And he does this, especially in chapter two here. Now, what is the myth of religious fulfillment? Well, first of all, it's something that I think, I, I know for sure I have fallen prey to, and I'm sure many of us in this room, probably all of us have at one time or another, whether uh, intended or not. But It suggests that, you know, Jesus invites us, or we invite Jesus into our lives, and he takes care of our sin. He frees us from our sin. He reconciles us to God, all that great stuff, and then uh, ensures all my hopes and aspirations are attained because he loves me, and he wants me to just be happy all the time, right? It's this idea that since I follow God, and I pursue him with earnestness, that his response is going to be, okay, these are your dreams, these are your hopes, these are your aspirations in life, well then let's get to it and I'll make it happen. And that is a myth. That is not something that happens. And anyone who's followed Jesus for any amount of time, if you're honest, would know that that's not true. Amen? Yeah, because you're still stuck in this world. And things don't go your way all the time. 
And it's kind of nuts that we have to even talk about this being a myth. And yet, so many of us have this sort of conviction. And so what happens with, um, with reality is when we believe this, that God's going to come and kind of fit all of our aspirations, our dreams, whatever, that when that doesn't happen, many of us become jaded. Many of us turn away from God altogether. And so it was a, it's a poor construct that we have of God in the first place that causes us to believe this. God never promises this. In fact, as we're going to look at this morning, um, the God who is with us, Emmanuel, who resides with us and experiences the tragedies and, and the discomforts and the upsets that we all experience as humans in this broken world, he, he very much challenges this myth head on. And he does so right within the Christmas story. We're going to start in uh, chapter 2 of Matthew, if you want to follow along. Um, in chapter 2, he addresses three sort of movements of this story that are often uh, kind of on the, they're not at the center of the Christmas story that we focus on, which, you know, would be the birth of Jesus, which makes sense. The, but, they're, you know, it's a part of the Genesis, part of the beginning of the Jesus story, his life. And we often miss them. You're definitely not going to find them in the Christmas pageant. Um, or you're not going to find them on the back of a Hallmark card. These are sort of not as popular, and yet they're very much in the scriptures, and they're very much a part of the story. And so he has these sort of three um, parts that we're going to look at this the beginning. And the first one is the visit of the Magi after Jesus' birth. So this is a couple months, likely, after Jesus is born. They're living in Bethlehem. And a quick background. So King Herod is uh, in charge of the time. We're familiar with that name, most of us. And for the record, King Herod was a bit of a crazy person. He was a sociopath. He was um, notorious for being quite violent, notorious for being very possessive of his throne. And so, of course, there are these astrologers, which is an odd story in and of itself. These astrologers from the East who are uh, discerning the, the messages in the stars that there is this new king to be worshipped. And so they're following this, this star and it brings them to Jerusalem. And so, unfortunately, the stars did not uh, convey to the astrologers that this king was crazy and he should not be consulted. So the first thing they do when they come upon uh, Jerusalem is they visit King Herod. And they ask King Herod, um, you know, where can we go to worship this new king? And that would probably be the last person you'd want to go talk to or ask about that question. Um, so, of course, King Herod has no idea about this. He's like, what, there's a new king? Uh, but he plays along because he wants to make sure he takes care of this new king. And by take care of it, I mean get rid of him. And so he says, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know where the new king is, but hey, when you find him, can you be sure to come back to me and let me know so I also can go and worship him? Do you remember this story? Yeah? And so that's where we'll pick up. Um, and now, before we go, the, the, the cool thing about this, and again, this is all sort of Mackey here, is um, that as he divides this into three movements, each addressing the question of where is God in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our tragedy, in the midst of the disappointments of life, um, there is this callback to the prophets uh, of the Old Testament. And so remember we said at the beginning that uh, one of the agendas, one of the purposes of writing the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, was for him to appeal to the Jewish people to um, 
convince them sort of that Yeshua was the Messiah. And what better way to do that than to appeal to their own prophets, right? Who spoke of him. And so the first story here is this Magi, they're coming to see this new king and they tell Herod. And so Herod goes and uh, sends his guards to basically kill this baby. And Joseph and his wife flee in the middle of the night with their son and they head to Egypt. And so we have this absolutely terrifying account. Picture yourself in their shoes. They are a few months into living with this new baby. You know, most estimates say that the Magi didn't come at, they weren't at the cave or the, the, the stable or the barn. They probably came a few months following Jesus when he was a little boy um, or baby still. But so a few months out, they're settled into their life in Bethlehem and then they get word that Herod, the king, the most powerful man around, is coming after them to kill their son. And so in the middle of the night, they flee for their lives. And they run off to Egypt, a strange and foreign land, far away from all that was familiar. And and this, on all accounts, is tragic, isn't it? It's not what their hopes and dreams were made of. It's not what they expected, as followers, like, hey, you, you entrusted us, the Messiah, uh, you know, to raise him. The least you could do is protect us along the way. You know, this is kind of inconvenient for us to head off to Egypt, fleeing for our lives. And so we see in verse 14, there's the snapshot of them doing this, and there's the pyramids that proves that they're in Egypt. <laughs> uh, we'll start in verse 13. When they had gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So here's the first movement where he appeals to a prophet. So Matthew wants to show how God is actually, you know, you might think he's not in this situation. You might think he's absent, but he's very much in the depths of this. He's very much present here. So again, Matthew's audience who's listening to this, there's something going on in their brains as they're, you know, reading this account or hearing this story told to them. Um, So here's this crazy, power-hungry king, right? They're going to Egypt, Huh, I remember Egypt. There's a slaughtering of children. There's an escape, a fleeing for your lives in the middle of the night. What do you think is happening in their minds as they're listening to this story? Yeah, they're they're very much thinking about the exodus that took place thousands of years earlier, right? To the people of Israel. When the nation of Israel was liberated from Egypt. And so Matthew, who's he quoting here? Well, he actually is quoting Hosea 11. Let's take a look. And he says, so this is what Hosea is referring to. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There it is. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they turned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. 
And so we, when, uh, first off, when we see things like, uh, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said, the immediate way that we understand prophecy means like, you know, the prophets were kind of like, struck by the lights, <laughs> and they saw this vision of some futuristic thing, and so they wrote it down in the Old Testament prophets. And so then, you know, the gospel writers appeal to that and be like, oh, see, they told us about this. This is what was fulfilled. This is to fulfill the law. But that's actually most times not what the prophets are doing. And, and this is a great example. Hosea is not talking about a futuristic Messiah who is, who's fleeing, out, fleeing to Egypt, right? This is not what it's talking about, is it? Hosea is very clearly speaking about the exodus uh, in the book of Exodus. He's very clearly speaking about the, the journey of the people of Israel. And so he, you know, they sacrificed to the Baals, they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. This is God speaking. I, I basically, when, they, when, when Israel was a new nation, I was I who led them, taught them their ways. So God is speaking, or Hosea is speaking specifically about the exodus of Israel. And Matthew applies it to this story here, where Jesus and his family are fleeing to Egypt. So what is the point of quoting this very clear passage about the exodus in the light of the story of Jesus? Well, Matthew, I think, wants to remind his people this is not the first time that a selfish, power-hungry king has tried to throw off God's purpose to save and redeem his people. That this is the work that God is into. This is his business. He is into bringing redemption. He is into, this is his whole thing. And you might think, oh no, oh, everything's going to part, falling apart. Joseph and Mary, they're fleeing to Egypt. Ah, they're running for their lives. They might not make it. What's going to happen? And God is reminding his people, look, remember that time that I saved the nation of Israel? I rescued them from Egypt. I liberated you. That's what's going on here. And uh, in fact, as the gospel of Matthew continues, and we're not going to get into that, but we know the story of um, Jesus being baptized into the Jordan River. Yeah. And then what happens immediately after that? He gets ushered away into the desert for 40 days. Again, beckoning back to the story. Let's check out this, ch this chart. Um, so Israel in the Exodus on the, right, on the left, Jesus in the new Exodus on the right. Journey to Egypt, journey from Egypt. Oppressive king killing children. Yeah, we still got that. Oppressive king ch killing children. God's son called out of Egypt. He calls Israel his son in Exodus 4. God's son called out of Egypt. That's Jesus. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, passages through the Jordan, baptized in Jordan. The similarities are uncanny. I mean, it is very deliberate what God, uh, what Matthew is trying to do with his audience here. There's just no denying that. So he's trying to see that even amidst the most horrific circumstances, the whole escaping in the middle of the night, the slaughtering of these babies, God is right there with us. This is Emmanuel. This is what it means to be Emmanuel. He's in the mess of it just as he was way back in Egypt when he rescued the Israelites. He is with us. And the other thing is he's not surprised by this because any time that God starts seeking a rescue uh, or, or seeking to display his redemptive purposes, there is pushback. There is resistance. Sin 
shows its kind of ugly head and tries to upend the work of redemption that is taking place that God is trying to do. So he's reminding us of that. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't the plan. Maybe this isn't what you wanted, but I can still work in that. I can still work through that. So in the midst of this terror that Mary and Joseph are experiencing, Matthew reminds us that God is still at work and still will achieve his redemptive purposes. Amen? And this leads to the second part of this story, the senseless slaughter of all of these children. So Herod, um, in his fury from being outwitted by the Magi, because the Magi, uh, you know, they're like, yeah, 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 we'll come back to you. And then they're told in a dream not to come back. And so they don't go back. They go around Jerusalem on their way back to the east. um, And they escape the interaction with Herod altogether. And so Herod has no idea where this new king is that's supposed to be worshipped. So he's frightened. So what is his response? His response is to order his soldiers to go out and slaughter every boy under two years of age. Every boy under two years of age. Now, um, scholars have done this legwork uh, before me, but they've done like population extrapolations, and they estimate that there were between 25 and 50 boys that were murdered that night. And that is just... Like, there's no other way to put it. That's just pure, senseless evil, isn't it? Right? And Mary and Joseph, they would have been en route to Egypt, most likely, when they heard this news. And you can imagine her just kind of clinging her son, her baby son, just a little bit tighter. Wow, we just escaped. But 25 or 50 babies just died because of this. And she holds her son open. Like, where is God in that? You know, th- those are the questions that there's, they're asking. There's more tragedy we have to face here? And again, we see Matthew taking the reader or the audience and hearkening back to the Old Testament prophets. And this is what he says in verse 16. When Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So again, I told you things would get a little bit geeky, Bible geeky today. Um, Quick background on Jeremiah. He predates Jesus about 600 years. And Jeremiah lives in a time, uh, one of the darkest darkest chapters of Israel's past, uh, the Babylonian exile. And so the the great empire of Babylon lays siege on um, the city of Jerusalem for over a year and basically just kills relentlessly all sorts of people. And then the survivors are hauled south of the city to a place called Ramah. And uh, they are chained up there and they uh, are then hauled off to Babylon where they, are, where they live in exile. And so this is what Jeremiah 31 says. Is again, a voice is heard in Ramah mourning and greet weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemies. So there's hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. So Jeremiah is mourning the loss and the death of some Israelites, the exiles of others. And yet, 
there is this hope in the second part of this that God is going to keep his blessing to his people, that, that they will be a blessing to all people through um, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. And <clears throat> so again, let's try to wrap our head why Ma- around why Matthew, referring to a prophet who, again, has nothing to do with a future slaughtering of babies in Jerusalem, right? She, you know, this author is very clearly, Jeremiah is very clearly referring to um, the exile, why is he doing that? So Jeremiah is depicting Rachel as weeping from her tomb. So who is Rachel? Well, Rachel is the wife of Jacob, and she's considered sort of the mother of Israel. So if Jacob's the father of Israel, Rachel would be the mother of Israel, the matriarch of the nation of Israel. And so she dies in childbirth, and she's buried outside of Jerusalem, a few miles away, which is in Ramah. And Jeremiah is saying that she is weeping from her tomb, over the Israelites, again, referring to the exile. And Matthew picks this up and he kind of lays it on top of the story of these babies being slaughtered. That essentially Rachel's weeping is not just for the Israelites experiencing tragedy uh, outside of Jerusalem, you know, in, uh, 600 years ago, or 600 years earlier, but that her tears reach further across the centuries to this current tragedy where there's this senseless slaughtering of these babies. And once again, the people of Israel are being killed and oppressed by yet another power-hungry king. And so Rachel, this mother of Israel, is crying out from her grave for all the needless suffering, all the tragedy the people of Israel are continuously experiencing to this day. So why does Matthew do that? Well, I think what he's saying here is he's addressing this question where God is in this tragedy. He's trying to depict Rachel's grief, the people of Israel's grief, God's own grief over what is happening to his people. Where is God in the moments of terror and tragedy? He's right there. He's, he's grieving like Rachel. He's weeping. He's speaking through his prophets that he is grieving and he is mourning alongside his people, not outside of his people, not far away from his people, but that this pain hurts him. That's what God with us is. And this is a common theme that we pick up in the scriptures. In Romans, um, Chapter 8, Paul is talking about uh, sort of the, the human condition and how there's all this depravity and sin. And he says, the Spirit of God groans. He uses this sort of same word, a similar word, groans or grieves for the state of affairs that we've created in this world. And it's this idea that he's not out there looking down on us. He's right here with us experiencing the tragedy of 25 to 50 babies being slaughtered. So then Herod dies, and there begins this relief for Mary and Joseph. Finally, that scary king is out of the way. We can go and live a normal life. And so for all intents and purposes, they probably want to move back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was Joseph's hometown. It was the city of David's pretty good community for the, the Messiah to be raised in. Um, and, you know, that's their hope. That's their expectation. But unfortunately, again, their dreams, their aspirations are shattered. Why? Because Herod's son, who takes the throne, is also crazy. <laughs> and potentially even more so than his father. And so they are forced to run further away. And they actually go up to the community of Nazareth, which is Mary's hometown, 
but it's 80 miles away from uh, Bethlehem. So just for context, if Thunder Bay is Jerusalem, okay, picture Thunder Bay is sort of like the hub of Northwestern Ontario, the, real, the place to be. If Thunder Bay is Jerusalem, we might say Kekebeka is Bethlehem, okay? I'm not saying like distance-wise, I'm just saying like community size or whatever, relativity. And if Bethlehem is Kekebeka, then I think like sunshine would be Nazareth. Does everyone know where sunshine is? As you're going down the highway, you can't miss it. Well, you can miss it um, quite easily. Um, you know, and if you're from sunshine, I apologize to the six people in the world who are from there. Um, but typically, like sunshine isn't a place where people are from. It's not a place where, you know, it's not a destination. There's certainly no significance to sunshine. No offense. They actually had to come up with the name sunshine to bring people into it. Like, it's sunshine. Um, but, you know, if you like fishing, there's fishing there, and that's great, and we've gone fishing there, it's good. But for all intents and purposes, it's not a great place to be raised or to live. There's certainly not a place where sort of nobility or, or anyone of prestige or significance would come from, right? And so that's what Nazareth is. It's a very undesirable little sort of hick town in the middle of nowhere. And... In fact, there's this passage in John 1. This actually speaks to how insignificant Nazareth is. Um, the disciples are coming, and they're, they're, they're coming to speak with some of the other disciples, Nathaniel, and they say, hey, look, we've come, we discovered the Messiah. We've discovered the Messiah. And like, oh, wow, where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Wait a sec. Nazareth, says Nathaniel? And he asks sort of rhetorically, can anything good come from Nazareth? And everyone knows, well, you're right, nothing good can come from Nazareth. But no, this is him, though. This is him. And so this idea that Nazareth is just like this know-nothing town. And so in verse 23, it says, So was fulfilled what that was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now here's uh, interesting. Nowhere in the scriptures are you going to find anyone mention that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find that Jesus is from Nazareth. The town of Nazareth didn't exist 150 years before this writing took place. So what on earth is going on here? And again, I did not develop this. I can't take credit for it, but it's a brilliant sort of pun that Matthew uh, takes here. He's actually doing a play on words on the word uh, that the two words that make up Nazareth, which is Nazar, which is Hebrew and Greek. And again, I'm going to butcher this to some degree. Hebrew and Greek, the word means stick or branch. And so Nazareth is branch town or stick town. That's what the word Nazareth means. And so the prophets did speak about that. And in fact, we read in Isaiah the first time when the Messiah is referred to a stick. He says a shoot or a branch or a stick will come up from the stump of Jesse. How many of you are familiar with that passage? Yeah, chapter 11. And then other prophets, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they also use this term of uh, referring to the Messiah as this branch that will rise up and rescue, that will grow and rescue them. So there was this idea, this stick idea. And so, um, you know, Jesus is going to come from stick town, essentially, and he will be called a stick man or a branch man. And I think uh, scholars are saying, or Matthew does this because he wants to bring the reader's attention to Isaiah in which uh, Isaiah develops the portrait of the Messiah in chapter 53. And notice how chapter 53 begins. Um, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
like a root out of dry ground. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Nazar means stick. Nazar town, he would be called stick man. And here we have this Messiah growing up like a stick. It's, it's pretty cool. You just have to trust me. It's really cool. Uh, and just for the sake of time, I'm going to skip a little bit. So he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root of dry ground. He is despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, um, familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is what Matthew is trying to get at by saying that, this prophet, that the prophet spoke of the Nazarene, that he would be called the Nazarene. They're referring to this branch of Jesse that rises up and experiences all the things that we experience, despised and rejected. How many of you have been despised and rejected by other people in your world and in your life? How many of you are familiar with pain? Other translations say familiar with grief. Yeah, many of us know that grief very intimately, don't we? And this is what it means to be human, to go through this. Isaiah 53, in many ways, paints a picture of what it means to be human, that God goes through these trials, that he enters into our human condition, into this reality, and endures this because he loves us so much. Now stop for a sec. Isn't it comforting to know that the God that we worship, this Emmanuel, that he gets us, and I don't mean like on a theoretical, I made you and therefore I understand you, but like on an experiential level, God gets us. Think about that. If I were to make a case for the Christian faith, I think I would start there in defending uh, or, or in, in creating an argument or creating a, a posture or whatever uh, to defend the Christian faith. I would say, yeah, but our God gets us because he lived as a human. He entered into our drama. I think that's where I would start if I were to make a case for it. I'm not, but if I did. Um, and so this is what Isaiah and now Matthew invites us to see that God is at work precisely in the lowest moments in our lives where we think he is maybe absent. Jesus' story invites us to see that that is actually where God is to be found. He's with us. And so the myth of religious fulfillment suggests that, you know, Jesus is going to make everything all right, and yet he doesn't. In fact, it's because of Jesus that Mary and Joseph's whole life gets torn, gets thrown upside down, isn't it? Right? Like, they were living a pretty decent life. Uh, you know, Joseph was engaged to Mary. They could have had a pretty easygoing life. And then everything went into disarray when Jesus comes on the scene. And yet, as Matthew shows us, it is in the fleeing for their lives. It is within the midst of this gruesome slaughter of innocent children. It's in the midst of growing up in a nothing town where nothing good should have come from 
and all of the despair and the fearful situations of life, God is still able to accomplish his redemptive plans. That's the promise that Matthew wants us to see and to cling on to. And he shows us that God doesn't answer all of our dreams and aspirations the way that we think he will. That's not his goal. He never promises that. And we have to kind of just get rid of that. You know, Mary and Joseph, do you think they wanted to flee Bethlehem? That probably wasn't high on their list of lifetime goals to go and visit the pyramids. It might be ours because the pyramids are cool, but that probably wasn't theirs, especially not under those circumstances. Do you think they wanted to grow up in Egypt or to raise their son in this foreign land? Do you think they wanted to um, have Jesus grow up in sunshine or, or Nazareth, right? Like that wasn't part of the plan. These were not the hopes and their dreams. And do you think Jesus wanted to go to the cross? No. I mean, we know he doesn't. Even in the garden, he makes the prayer, take this cup from me if there's any way. I would rather not do this, Father. And yet he does because he loves us. And so even for Jesus, his hopes, his aspirations, they don't come to pass the way he had wanted them to. But the only thing that separates Jesus' life from being a complete, utter tragedy is the resurrection. Amen? And all the evil and the disappointments and the despair and, and this human condition, that does not get the final word. And there's this giant sort of like sticking it to the man, <laughs> sticking to the man of evilness that Jesus says, by that Jesus gives by, raising, uh, by being raised from the dead. Death does not get the last word. And that is the truth that we get to confess as well. Literally, it's the only thing we can say, all this stuff about naming it and claiming it and these are my dreams and God will make it come true. Yeah, some of that stuff might come true. Keep working for it. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But the only thing you can claim as a follower of Jesus is that death does not get the last word. And so we can hope and we can pray for, you know, the restoration of the Bahamas. And, and I think people should begin doing what they can to, toward restoring that island. But what happens if there's another hurricane? What are you going to do when there's another hurricane that comes and destroys it again? Just keep rebuilding, keep, you know. When you put your hope in that, as we focus on uh, the Advent uh, calendar or Advent candle this morning, as we put our hope in these things, there's no guarantee. There is none. Our hope, all of our hope, Christmas reminds us that our hope is in the resurrection, not in the fleeting things of our lives, not in our hopes and aspirations, not in the dreams that we may have, because God doesn't promise that fulfillment. That's not the game that we signed up for. And so Matthew begins with tragedy, but he ends with resurrection. Now, how bleak and, and sort of ridiculous would the story have been if it was just sort of suffering, suffering, uh, suffering, crucifixion, end of story. Right, like that would, we wouldn't be telling that story today, would we? 
2,000 years later, we wouldn't be. And thankfully, it's not. He teaches us, Matthew teaches us that even in the myth of religious fulfillment is complete bunk, and it is. The one thing that will be fulfilled, that we are to put our hope in, is the fact that death does not get the last word, that there is a resurrection, that there is hope beyond the grave. So this Christmas, my challenge to our community, and I'll invite the, the band to come up at this time, my challenge for our community is to meditate on the God who is with us. Amen. Emmanuel, who enters uh, into the pain, into the difficult circumstances of our lives, into our suffering that we call this the human condition, the reality of what it means to be human, and who ultimately conquers all of it, that his redemptive plans will still be achieved. And he invites us to put our hopes into that, and nothing else. Keith is going to be speaking uh, over the next few weeks throughout the rest of December on receiving God's love. How do we receive God's love at Christmas? You know, this, this God who's with us that enters into our world, how do we receive him? How do we receive his love? And I, I think one way to begin is to consider the God who loves us so much that he comes down to our level as humans. He comes down to be with us, to willfully submit himself to all of the junk that we as humans experience to the point of death, to bear the full brunt of death's power. Having his dreams, his expectations crushed, just like yours and mine have often been. And then, thankfully, conquering that. That's, in my mind, how we begin <clears throat> to love God and to experience and receive that love. Just meditate on that this, this morning and throughout these weeks as we lead up to Christmas. And so as we enter now the time of the communion, it's brilliant, a symbol that we in our community and the church around the world practices regularly as a way to hearken back to that event that took place 2,000 years ago where Jesus does, as I said, culminates or experiences the full brunt of sin and then conquers even that. And so I invite you to the table this morning um, and pray that you'll meditate on these thoughts and pray that this Christmas, things will be a little bit different in your expectations and your hopes and in your dreams and that you'll be gearing them toward ultimately the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this time together, this opportunity to um, learn from your will, to learn from your word, to, to study uh, the gospel of Matthew a little bit in depth. Thank you for those scholars who have um, done such good work to really seek to understand what these words are teaching us today and the application and, and just the beauty of the message of, your, of you, Father, being present with us through the person of Jesus, entering into our midst. Help us to dispel the, the, the myth of religious fulfillment in our lives. Recognize, Father, that you are working out your plan of redemption through us in spite of all the sin and baggage and junk that happens. You can still work out your ways. Thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to the table.